Amen. Well, welcome everybody inside. Great being connected with all of you guys outside. Um, we appreciate you guys and especially the folks that are watching online as well. So uh, it's nice to be able to expand and, and reach more and more folks through these different venues. But um, I've got a question for you. Anybody here struggle with pride at all? To the, uh, you know, I, anybody that knows me knows that I have some pride issues, um, right? But did you know that my sweet wife, Carolyn, has pride issues, that she struggles with pride? So I'm going to tell you a story about some of her issues. And uh, <laughs> she has given me permission, for the most part, to uh, share this. So anyhow, a long, long time ago, we used to live on the other side of, of Roanoke. We were involved with Roanoke Young Life, and they are having a Christmas party. It was at Keith and Lenny McCurdy's house. Some of you humble people know um, Keith McCurdy because he is a, uh, a counselor, and you have seen him and asked for help. So anyhow, um, it was at their house, and, and their house was up on a hill, and they had this long, steep driveway. And it was, it was cold, it was snowy, it was icy out. And, and I remember pulling up to their house, and, and everything's snow-covered, but there were like these two pads, you know, where their vehicle had come up the driveway and already cut a path. And so we get out of the car, and we start heading up trying to walk up that path. But the challenge was that thing had frozen over already, and so it was really difficult to keep your balance, and we were making our way up there, and then, you know, me being as intelligent as I am, realized it would be better to step into the grass, right, where it was, it was a little crunchier and I could get my footing. And so I stepped over there and, and was able to, to make some better progress and not fear falling, and then I, I looked at my beautiful wife, and I thought this would be good for her too, so I, I reached out my hand to grab hold of her hand to help save her from falling, and yet I didn't realize she was wearing these really cute flats, and uh, she didn't want to get in the snow with them because it could ruin her new shoes, and, and so she, um, instead of embracing my uh, hand, she ripped her hand out of mine, and she goes, I don't need your help, and because of the force of pulling her hand out, she started sliding backwards down this driveway, just like this, trying to fall keep from falling. And then finally, she just had to bail out into, into the grassy snow. And she is covered in snow, her nice little Christmas outfit, and those uh, cute little flats, done. All because of her pride. She wouldn't allow me to save her. Any of you guys have stories like that? Where, where maybe you wouldn't allow somebody to save you or somebody significant to you, they wouldn't allow, their pride wouldn't allow them to allow you to save them? Well, the Israelites have lots and lots of stories of how their pride would not allow them to be saved. And so we're going to look at that this morning. We are in Hosea. We're nearing the end. It's the second to the last chapter. And what we've been seeing is that Hosea is a prophet. He's, he's a man that God is speaking through to the Israelites to really call them to account. They've turned their back on God. They've gone their own way. And, and Hosea is calling them back to him. Now, um, they just continue to be defiant as they go along. And we're going to see how their pride gets in the way. We're going to be looking at Hosea chapter 13. And so if you would like to follow along, if you have one of those paper Bibles, it's about two-thirds of the way in. If you use a smartphone or something like that, you just look up Hosea and you'll be with us, Hosea chapter 13. And, and we'll see how they started out well. But then once they were satisfied and, and they were prosperous, they became proud they forgot about God, and they started going their own way. 
and there were consequences to their actions. There was, there was going to be some serious consequences that we're going to look at this morning. But in the midst of all of that, in the midst of God's judgment, we're going to see that he always provides hope. So Hosea chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. When Ephraim spoke, people trembled. He was exalted in Israel, but he became guilty of Baal worship and died. Now, Ephraim was the son of Joseph, who was the son of Jacob. And we talked about Jacob last week, how he had 12 sons. They became these 12 tribes. But Joseph um, was really well known as this guy who had this coat of many colors, right? And his brothers didn't like that because he was dad's favorite and they were jealous of him. And then they did what all brothers do. They tried to kill him. Um, But one of them had a little more sense and said, no, let's not kill him. We don't want his blood on our hands. We'll just sell him into slavery. And so that's what they did instead. And so he becomes a slave. But he was faithful to God. When most of us might shake our hand and our fists against God, he remained faithful. And God blessed and promoted his faithfulness. And he grew in stature as he was a slave in Egypt. He became the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. And God used his faithfulness to be a blessing to his family. And he rescued his family from starvation. He saved them. Now, um, he divided his part of the kingdom into two between his two sons. One of his sons was named Ephraim. And Ephraim was, was a godly man, and he grew in stature. He grew in size. It was the largest tribe in, northern, in the northern part of the territory of the region, of the nation. Um, and yet, and yet, he and his descendants... They were representative of everybody else there, too. That he, too, turned his back on God and began to worship other gods like Baal. And so that's what we see taking place here. Now, beginning in verse 2, we can see just how bad things have gotten. It says, now they sin more and more. They sin more and more. They make idols for themselves From their silver, cleverly fashioned images, all of them, the work of craftsmen. It's said of these people, they offer human sacrifices. They kiss calf idols. Now, now this is a kind of depravity that I don't don't think we can even imagine. I mean, people were, were sacrificing. What they're talking about here is child sacrifice that they were sacrificing their children to these made-up gods, these false gods, that they were taking their silver and melting it down and having craftsmen make these statues of cows, and they were kissing them and bowing down to them. Like, that is a kind of depravity that we can't even imagine, right? And yet that is what was taking place during Hosea's time. That's what he was speaking against. That's how bad it had become. These people have been so prosperous. And this is what they did. They turned from God and they turned to this. Now, listen to, to what was about to happen to them in verse 3. It said, therefore, they will be like the morning mist, and the er- like the early dew that disappears, like chaff swirling from a threshing floor like smoke escaping through a window. Because of their unfaithfulness, because of their depravity, they were going to quickly disappear. 
they're going to become insignificant, kind of like smoke going out the window. That's what was in store for him. God was warning them about this. And in the midst of that, he, he's trying to remind them of who he truly is, of what he has done. We see this beginning in verse 4. It says, But I've been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God but me, no Savior except me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of burning heat. This is how they're responding to the fact that he was their deliverer. He was the one that rescued them from slavery. He, he's reminding them of that, of how he provided for them. And then verse 6, I, I think is so telling. It says, when I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. Listen to that again. Listen to this pattern. When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. Isn't that our tendency? Like when we're hungry or in need and everything else has failed, we turn to God and we beg God to help us. And then he provides for us and we are satisfied. And once we are satisfied, we become full of pride, feeling like we don't need God. We don't acknowledge God as our provider. And pretty soon after that, we just forget about God. That is until we're in a desperate situation again and we need feeding. And then we're satisfied and we're proud and we forget them. We tend to follow this pattern just like the Israelites. Reminds me of a story. When my two oldest boys, Andrew and Alan, were, were just little guys, I, I remember we were out doing something one day and, and uh, they were hungry and, and they asked, they said, Dad, can we go to McDonald's to get something to eat? And I said, sure. Because I'm that kind of dad, just always giving. The, uh, and so, so we, I remember going to McDonald's, going through the drive-thru. I said, what do you boys want? And, of course, they wanted a Happy Meal. So I, I ordered two Happy Meals for them. I didn't get anything for myself. And I remember being at the window, and, and they hand me the Happy Meal boxes. And I lean back. They're in their car seats in the back and, and hand it to them. And then I pull up a little ways. And, and I go, hey, boys, can, can I have a couple fries? To which they answered, No. I was like, excuse me, can I please just have a couple fries? Again, answered, no. We need to have a, a little lesson. Now, they didn't quite understand. I am the father. I have provided that happy meal for you and those fries. They have been a gift from me to you. They don't technically belong to you. They belong to me. And so you should freely give me back some of those fries that are mine in the first place. I had the power to give those fries to you, and I have the power to take them away. And I think the Israelites need to be reminded of a lesson like that, that that happy meal was not of their own making, that they didn't deserve that happy meal, they didn't provide that happy meal, that God provided, and that when they held on to it, and he said, give it back, they should have given it back. See, that's how depraved they were. They recognized themselves as the provider instead of God as the provider. They were fed. They were satisfied. When they became satisfied, they became proud. And when they became proud, they forgot about God. Now, actions 
have consequences. Listen to this severe judgment beginning in verse 7. It says, so I will be like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will lurk by the path. Like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will attack them and rip them open. Like a lion, I will devour them. A wild animal will tear them apart. You're destroyed, Israel, because you are against me, against your helper. Where is your king that he may save you? Where are your rulers in all your towns of whom you said, give me a king and princes? So in my anger, I gave you a king, and in my wrath, I took him away. The guilt of Ephraim is stored up. His sins are kept on record. The pains of a woman in childbirth come to him, but he is a child without wisdom. When the time arrives, he doesn't have the sense to come out of the womb. How foolish the Israelites were. How foolish the Israelites were. They they were like babies who aren't willing to come out of the womb. Now, I know something about this. Personal experience. 32 years ago, almost to the day, our oldest son, Andrew, was due to be born. And it was a... Just a normal pregnancy like any other. Uh, I, I remember Carolyn was uh, growing and, and growing and growing. I mean, I mean, Andrew was a big boy in there. And, and I remember the doctor and, and everybody else that saw Carolyn were like, oh, this baby's coming early. This baby's coming early, which is the last thing you should ever say to somebody that is pregnant, right? Do not set that expectation because now we are expecting the baby to come early. And guess what? He didn't come early. He did not come on time. He would not come out of there. So the due date comes, and the due date goes. Now she's going to the doctor every few days, hoping this is going to be it, but he won't come out. We try every, everything. We're going on long walks trying to get that baby to come out. He won't do it. You know, we're going, we have friends with boats up at the lake. We're going on these, on these bumpy boat rides every night, like just trying to get him out. But he won't come out. She even drinks that castor oil. Like no, he's not coming out. Like we tried, did we, we tried everything, believe me, everything you can do to get that baby to come out. He would not come out. Finally, after two and a half weeks, she's at the doctor, right? It's a Friday. She goes in there and... and She's pretty desperate at this point, and he pokes and prods and does everything he can to try and get, get things moving down there. And then uh, nothing happened that day. So now it's Saturday. Saturday's progressing along. All of a sudden, there, there's some hope. Like, there's some progress. It feels like there's some contractions coming on, and we're getting excited, right? There's great anticipation. Um, that evening, all of a sudden, now we're having contractions. It, it's time. It's time. But here's the thing. Our insurance only covered two days in the hospital, and it was already late on Saturday night. So if we got there before midnight, it would count as one day. So I, we need to stall, you know, till I'm like, get in the knee chest position or something, you know, till because we can't go in there till midnight because I'm frugal, right? The, uh, so anyhow, we got all the stuff together. We had the bags, and then we had to go to Kroger, right? Because, you know, as a first-time mom, she's doing everything right. Like, she quit Coke, and uh, 
smoking crack and all that kind of stuff. You know, the, uh, like the stuff you're supposed to stop doing, right? And uh, I was proud of her. That was a big sacrifice. But she wanted her Coke, you know. So uh, we had to go. I took the cooler. I mean, I got the Coke. We were ready. As soon as the baby's out, here's your Coke. The uh, priority. So anyhow, we got all that together. We're in the parking lot of the hospital. Hits midnight. I'm like, let's go, you know. And in we go into the hospital. You know, now we can have the baby. It's our, like, all right, it's go time. So we're in there, and we're waiting. And he still won't come out. Hours go by. Still, he will not come out of there. Finally, the nurse goes, it's, it's time to push. And she starts pushing and pushing. But he won't come out. She pushes more. He won't come out. Three and a half hours of pushing. He won't come out. All of a sudden, the mood changes in the room. It goes from being kind of joyous and fun to, to really serious. And they wheel her into an operating room. And I, I get in the gown, right? And, and I go, they allow me to stand in there, and I'm by her head, and I'm holding that hand that she had jerked out of mine because of her pride, you know, the, uh, just being the comforting husband that I am. And the, uh, then all of a sudden, the, like, the doctor pulls out these, these silver, like, salad tongs. And he, like, shoves them in there and pulls out the baby just like that. Just out he comes. Just like that. You know, I don't think he would be born yet <laughs> if it weren't for those salad tongs. I think he'd still be in there. 32 years later, he'd still be in there because he just loved that warm, cozy, comfortable womb. He, he was content in there. But God had plans for him. He had, he had adventures for him to experience. He had plans for his life. He had hardships that he was going to have to experience. There were people that were going to depend on him. He had to come out of the womb for his sake and for Carolyn's sake, right? The Israelites were like a baby who was not willing to come out of the womb. They just had been so prosperous they, they just wanted their warm, comfy, cozy lives. And they weren't willing to follow God. Well, even though their, their actions were foolishness and they could prove deadly, we, we see how this all unfolds here. It begins in verse 15 saying, I will have no compassion. Even though he thrives among his brothers and east wind from the Lord will come, blowing in from the desert. His spring will fail, and his well dry up. His storehouse will be plundered of all its treasures. The people of Samaria must bear their guilt because they have rebelled against their God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed to the ground. Their pregnant women ripped open. This may sound unbelievably harsh. That kind of judgment of God, unbelievably harsh, but it's what they deserved. It's what they deserved. And that may be hard for us to um, wrap our minds around, but remember who they were. God had provided everything. He had rescued them, and yet they had turned to sacrificing their children to these made-up gods. They were bowing down and kissing statues of cows 
as if this cow had provided for them. They were getting what they deserved. And, and sadly, that's what we deserve as well. You know, maybe we haven't sacrificed our children, so to speak, to false gods, but in many instances, we have sacrificed our children. And maybe we haven't bowed down and kissed a silver cow, but we've bowed down to other things. We're guilty. We're guilty like them. Like the Israelites, we, we, we believe like that Happy Meal is ours. We deserve it. Not only do we deserve it, we, we're the ones responsible for providing it. We haven't given credit where credit is due. See, when God has fed us and we become satisfied, we become proud. And when we become proud, we forget about him until we need him again. We've been just like the Israelites. And so what were they to do? Were they without hope? Were they without hope? Are we without hope? Well, did anyone notice when I was reading through the passage that I skipped a verse? I skipped one verse, verse 14. And I want you to see in the midst of this rebellion, in the midst of God's judgment, there's hope. Verse 14. I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O oh death, are your plagues? Where, O oh grave, is your destruction? You know, I've said time and time again, God is a God of redemption, of reconciliation, and restoration. God is a God of redemption, reconciliation, and restoration. That's his nature. Even in the midst of our rebellion, his nature remains the same. Even in the midst of his judgment, there is hope. There is hope. If we're not too proud to be saved. See, that's usually the problem. It's because we're too proud to recognize our need for a Savior. But if we're not too proud, God will save us. And who does he save us through? It's Jesus Christ. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said. He quoted this very verse. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 through 56, he, he was speaking of, of Jesus' resurrection and the power of the resurrection for those who believe and follow him. And it says this, When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, this is the hope. This is the hope that Hosea was pointing to back in his day with the Israelites. And it's the same hope that we are pointing to today and that hope is a person, that hope is Jesus Christ. It's in his life, his death, and ultimately in his resurrection to the point where he never died again. Here, here, here's the question for us, because I, I'm afraid too often we're like, like those kids. You, you know, we're, 
we're the ones thinking we deserve the happy meal. We're the ones who are satisfied, full of pride and, and forgetting God. We're just like the Israelites. But here's the question. Are we too proud to allow God to save us? Are we too proud to allow God to save us? Are we too proud to allow God to save us? Or are we ripping our hand out of his, saying, I can do it myself. I can do it myself. Are we too proud to allow God to save us? Let's pray. God, I pray that 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 question would really just sink in and that it would cause us to wrestle with our own pride and our own arrogance. It's, It's easy to look at the Israelites, to point fingers at them, to just be disgusted by them and and disbelief how they could be so depraved. And yet, in our own way, we've been guilty just like them. Lord, I do pray that we might be humbled, gently humbled, to the point where we would recognize our need and we would surrender to Jesus Christ, that we would allow you to be not only our Savior but our Lord and that we would follow you wherever you want to lead us, that we wouldn't be like, like babies who don't want to be you know, born, who, who want to remain in the womb, who, who really just are clinging to our, our warm, comfortable, cozy lives instead of venturing out with you running the risk of experiencing the trials and tribulations that you have promised we will experience if we're following you. But we don't want to forsake or miss out on those hard-fought victories, which are also promised by you. Thank you that when we follow you, we are more than conquerors, that we are truly victorious. We ask all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.